Come with us on a journey into the unknown, the unexplained, and the unbelievable. We will test your senses and challenge your beliefs. A world where science and religion clash. Or do they? You will meet real people and hear real stories, but you will not believe. You will witness strange sights and hear strange sounds, but you will not believe. This is the New England Ghost Project. Welcome to the Good evening, and welcome to another episode of Ghost Chronicles Next Generation. I am your host, Ann Kerrigan, also known as The Blonde Bombshell. My co-host, Ron Kolek, unfortunately couldn't be here tonight, but I promise you he'll be back in his wing chair on the next show. So Ron and I discussed what I should talk about tonight and decided that we wanted to share a little bit of this past year's SpiritQuest event. Now in its eighth year, SpiritQuest is like no other Paracon, it's an interactive, hands-on experience dealing with a specific topic, featuring a multitude of speakers. In 2018, we had British ghost hunter, author, and father of parascience, Steve Parsons, Dylan Jones of The Great British Ghost Hunt, and America's favorite paranormal author, investigator, and overall fun guy, Jeff Belanger, as our featured speakers. In the first half of today's episode, we'll bring you an impromptu paranormal panel comprised of Ron Kolek, Jeff Belanger, and Steve Parsons. One of our planned speakers had a flat tire on the way to the event, so we had an informal Q&A session where the audience could pick the brains of the season's investigators. In the second half of the show, you'll hear a presentation by Joe Cambria and Greg Berghorn from New Fork, the New England UFO Reporting Center. This is a topic we rarely cover on Ghost Chronicles, and Joe and Greg gave a very interesting talk on the subject that I found fascinating. So let's start our selections from Spirit Quest 2018. Enjoy. What is your favorite ghost encounter experience and why? You're the most famous. So, um, I was. Um, when I started in all this, I was a newspaper reporter, and I didn't disbelieve in ghosts, but I didn't really have my own experience yet, either. That didn't come until 2003, when I was in the catacombs of Paris, and as I was below the city, I was alone, and uh, the catacombs are filled with just millions of human skeletons that had been moved down there between mid-1700s to 1800s, and as I'm walking down this long hallway, I see this shadow the size of a man that moved from one side to the other and back. And I just froze, and I went, oh my god. Like this, and my brain's going through, like, well, what could it be? And, and then, like, the, the tunnel was narrow enough that no one got by me. There was no side tunnels. And at that moment, I went, this is what everyone's talking about. I have no word for what I saw other than ghost. And I've had a few experiences since. In 20 years of doing this, I can count really on, like, one hand how many times I can say, I got no word for that other than paranormal. But that was the first time. And I went, wow, I think I just lost some objectivity. I, I think I have to call myself a believer. And I still try to remain skeptical and objective in everything that I do, but I've had some experiences that I can't explain with any other word, and that was the first, and I'll never forget. For me, I've spent 40 years looking for ghosts. Uh, I think it comes, for me, to one incident that took place in... Uh, I discounted an earlier incident because I was alone. But on the second occasion, myself and a colleague were working for the BBC. 
and we were at the shipyard on the banks of the River Mersey, which we spent three years looking at. And we, we, this was a building that we knew in depth. We had names for every brick and tile in the wall. We, we'd been there that long. And the BBC had uh, its Halloween season, and they want to do a short 10-minute feature about the ghosts of the shipyard. And they sent a reporter, cameraman reporter, to, to a two, you know, two-person team along with us for the night. And we knew nothing was going to happen. And they arrived at, uh, at dusk and towards dawn, about an hour before dawn, nothing had happened, and we decided to call it a night and go out. And then they were just going to make a, a story about the other accounts. And I said, the last thing that we had to do, because um, we'd been there three we had the keys, and it's quite a responsibility to be given the keys to the shipyard, and it was quite an honour. And so we took you know, a great deal of care of. And the last thing that we used to do was uh, we all, they, they put the stuff, put the camera stuff in the thing, and the course started to get ready to, to leave. And myself and Anne went back to, to lock the building. And as we locked, uh, locked up, we looked, you know, just to give it a... And there was a light up on the first floor. Sec uh, second floor of the Americans, the first floor in Britain. Uh, upstairs, there was a light on above us. And we thought, oh, we've left the lights on, we're, you know, we better nip in and turn off. And as we looked, the light went off. And another light came on about five windows up. Now, that room is one very long, open plan uh, technical drawing office from the shipyard, or was technical uh, the shipyard. So we thought, oh, something's gone in. You know, we have the key, but you know, something's broken in, we'll have to go and. Uh... So we rushed back in, went upstairs. We could hear a door close, and what sounded like movement, we looked, clearly something in. Uh, we went up onto that floor and opened the, the office doors to go into this room. And along the ceiling are strip lights uh, with pull cords, individual string cords that the the, draft, the, the draftsman who did the technical drawings for the ships would sit in. They needed lights. And we could hear, we saw two panels go on and three go off. And we heard the clicks. And then the doors at the far end, so about 70 feet away, we saw one of them swing. Now, the building is like a, an elongated rectangle of corridors. So my uh, colleague Anne went one way, I went the other way because we would have to meet, you know, there was no other way in and out apart from this one stairwell up and down and this rectangle. And we met at the far end, there was nobody there. Uh, and as we started to walk back, there was this, the door that we had just come through, sort of opened and closed one more time. And all of the lights on that floor went out. As we turned to go down the stairs, uh, we heard a noise behind us turn around uh, as a BBC camera suddenly appeared, rushing up the stairs, breathless, and a reporter, I remember afraid, she said, Is that a ghost? <laughs> and I turned on, Oh, f oh! <laughs> We didn't, as I said, we didn't know. And uh, we then spent three months looking at every, was it the electrics of the building? We spoke to the person who designed the electrics of the building. We pulled the plans for the, the wiring diagrams for the building and discovered that the only way to turn those panels on and off was the string. There was no master switch anywhere. 
So there was no building, uh, you know, you can, the electrics for the building, there was no isolator switches. The only way those panels could be turned on and off was the pulley. <coughs> so that to me had me questioning. So I have I've had paranormal experiences. I have seen what I believe were full body ghosts, but not, oddly enough, not all investigated in everyday life while doing ghost tours. I remember one case, I saw a woman go by, and I had to wait for her because she was outside the place, and I waited for her to come in, and I saw her walk all the way over to the door. There were some of our volunteers out there, and she never came in. I found this, because I had stopped right by the middle, I said, I was waiting for her to go repeat myself. That's what I'm sure. So uh, <laughs> finally, there was no one there, but I saw it clear as day, not to stop what I was talking about. There was another time I was working on the, it was after a ghost hunt of it, Wood Island. And I was having coffee on a Sunday morning with one of the directors up there, and I looked at the kitchen, and I saw a dog, as clear as can here, go across the door, never heard anything. You know how dogs make sounds? No sounds. I jumped up, ran out to there. There was no dog. I came back. Uh, the person I was with, what can you describe the dog? Sure, as clear as day. I described the dog. She told me a story. There was a lighthouse keeper up there who had a dog, as a dog I described. And it was time for the dog to... The lighthouse keeper to leave the island, the dog wouldn't go. So he stayed on the island, and every lighthouse keeper took after him until he died up there. Now, can I say, that well, was the dog? No. But I saw something that I believe was a dog as clear as day. And these are my experiences. So whether you believe it or not, I mean, it's up to you. But that's what I experienced and believed in. Now, all these things, right, that have happened to me, and there's been a lot of them, because uh, I explore the paranormal more than anybody. A lot of people will, will think, oh, he was a... Uh, crazy or crap or whatever, uh, which, you know, I thought they were all gypsies when they first started. But in order for me to try to understand them, you have to partake in it and try to understand it. If you can have that experience, what is going on? So all these things that happen, the bottom line is, can I tell you they're all ghosts? They're all paranormal? No, they cannot. And I don't think I'll ever be able to. She asked your favorite paranormal experience, and Thank you. You, what, what you meant to say was the time I called you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> started with an email I got from Lloyd Auerbach, who's a parapsychologist based on the West Coast, and the subject was, you owe me. <laughs> and it had attachments, and he said, there's this haunted place in Quincy, Mass., which I know is out near you, Jeff, and you might want to look into it. This person sent me these videos, and there's these orb things flying around. This person runs a business, and she teaches pole dancing. <laughs> so uh, I watched the video, and I said, there's the, there's the things, these white, white orbs right in the camera. And I said, Ron, you want to go investigate this? He's like, uh, you know, a damsel in distress, we're on our way. Studio, and I brought my neighbor who works for a company that makes equipment that measures everything in the environment from dust particles to moisture to everything else. He's like, I, I need to help. And I said, Of course. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to need to call it on the phone. Need to help. So we all go out there and we set up like thousands of dollars worth of gear. We've got, you know, cameras, we've got uh, different things. And so there's this awkward long pause, and we're like, So this ghost only appears while you're dancing. <laughs> so. You should probably go ahead and dance. And she's like, okay, yeah. <laughs> she was ready to go. So she's dancing and twirling around, and uh, and then 
we were all watching, and yeah. uh, I ran out of singles and like. <laughs> <laughs>
otherwise, you know, there's nothing there, they're dead. And nobody's dead, so. And they, so they do this. And then what we ha what we realized is, uh, in the early days, is people would, we come to the, the point where you hand in the, the sheet of paper. Uh, and some people would say, oh, um, my handwriting was written in the dark, it was all. But when you look at that first scribbled sheet of paper, and the one that they wrote half hour later whilst having coffee, they changed the story. Because they had a chance to think about what was happening and rationalize different parts of it. And what we wanted was the instantaneous, spontaneous impressions and thoughts, not what they were rationalizing. The next day, it's changed again. If you get two people together, one can read. Even the act of asking them a question about the experience will change the nature of how it's reported. And so, as an investigator, you have to be incredibly careful how you ask a question. You can't say, where did you see the ghost? Because you're already implied that it is a ghost. You have to also be very careful from an ethical point of view about how you approach uh, a case, because you might want to demonstrate your expertise. Oh, yes, like a poltergeist that we did down the road. They may never have heard of a poltergeist, but Google gives them five minutes. I know set fire to things and pour water on things and nuns appear. And there was no fear there before, but now there's fear. And so that changes the, the perspective again. Even the act of getting them to keep a diary of the events focuses their mind on the events, and you find that more events, uh, more experiences we <coughs> than many new people experiences. Because, i give you an example. You go out to work in the morning, you come back in the refrigerators, free refrigerator doors open. The first thing that the majority of people here will go, oh, stupid mate, I left the refrigerator door open, I didn't shut it. You live in a haunted house, you are 100% sure. You remember closing the refrigerator door and something else opened it. So you've got to be very careful about how you take from a witness. No, I'm just saying, as a journalist, I found too, that's how I started in all this. Uh, I would often ask, uh, I, I found I need to ask three times. And so I might say, like, okay, so tell me what happened last night. Well, I came home from work, I walked in, and right there at the top of the stairs, there's this man standing, and then he's gone. And I'm like, okay. And then I would ask again, like, was anything different? Like, let's go moment by moment. Did you unlock the door? Like, did you smell anything? Did you hear anything? Did you see anything? And when, you, when they start to recall senses, sensory experiences, no, I smell, oh, you know what? I smell cookies, baby. I think my wife cooked baked cookies earlier today. Fine, just take me slower through it. And then suddenly more details come out that didn't come through because they might just feel silly and they're rushing through the description, you know? Uh, there was a man. Well, what did the man look like? What did you see? What do you recall? You know, had a hat on. They didn't mention the hat the first time. And then I'll ask, and then talk about other stuff. And then later on, I might ask, like, cleanup questions. Like, anything else different? Was the hat, was there a time period you might remember about it? You know, just something that's just getting them to more comfortable with me and then to open up more and more about the details of that experience because it's going to change, uh, you know, over time. If you get it early, then that's your best bet. It's so important, and we always, Steve always talks about it, is, is the right things out when you do ghost hunting. You know, I had paranormal experiences. When someone comes to us, we always tell them, keep a diary. Uh, Maureen and I wrote these books. Yeah, I'm really getting these books. You're plugging away. Yes. 
And uh, anyway, the police went in with uh, truncheons and riot shields. And it went very quiet inside. And then they said, the, the police came out and said, she's allowed two of you to go in and collect the rest of the equipment. As, as, that drew to, as that drew to an end, um, the policeman came out carrying six plastic supermarket carrier bags and said, uh, who's are these? And she said, they're not mine, they must belong to them. So the policeman put them in the boot and the trunk of the car. We left, we drove down the motorway, we pulled into the first motorway services because obviously everything was in array, it was in the wrong cars, and we decided we Take, take a drink, uh, you know, calm down, move all the stuff around, and we came to these six carrier bags, and in these six carrier bags were 34 car radios. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Do I infer a new digital record? <laughs> <laughs> Obviously they were ours, uh, and they've been given to us by a police officer. Once again, I mean, as you, you know, the three of us, from what I've discussed and what I'm going to say too, is, is really not the paranormal mysterious, it's, it's real people. And Maureen can attest to this was uh, when I asked her, invited her to the yes, case. I can. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah, I do. Well, when you, you know, you can say, you know, not understanding where you're going to go during the investigation, right, to keep yourself so that you don't, you know, trusting yourself so that you're not Googling, right? So Ron called me up and said, hey, I have this investigation to go, and it's 10 o'clock in the morning or during the week, can you tell? And I thought, oh, how harmful could it be? You know what I mean? It's during the day. It's, yeah, sure, yeah, whatever. So we go there, and we get into this house, and there's these two guys, huge guys. I swear the guy's name was Moose. It was a big, big, big guy, all leather tattoos. And one guy, bring this in, and the house, like a ranch-style house, was destroyed. There was mirrors busted in pieces, glass everywhere broken, and all he kept saying was, you better find out who it is. It's a little girl. I'm thinking, oh, yeah, a little girl's doing this, you know? You know, we were dowsing, whatever, but picking up, it wasn't a little girl, it was a guy. It was this man who was very soft. And I thought, okay, well, it's a guy. No, it's not. Okay, well, I think it is. No, it's not. Okay, that's fine, Ron, I think we gotta go. You know, so we walked around, we walked outside. Ron's still standing there with the moose of the man. Yeah, moose kind of And um, this other guy grabs my arm and walks me to the end of the driveway. And he said to me, I want you back here. I was like, what? He's like, I really want you to come back without Ron. I'm thinking, help me And he's like, I don't know why you would think it was a guy. It's a little girl. And I said, well, I, I, I'm sorry, but this is what I'm getting. And sometimes, maybe it is. Maybe it's a girl. I don't know. I'm thinking, just get me out of here. Say whatever you want. Get me out. And he said, because I just got out of prison for killing my best friend. So he had murdered his best friend, and it's a guy. But I don't think it's him. Okay, yeah, that's great. So he's like, come on, I want your phone number. Uh-huh, no. And so I can see one in his eyes, like from far away. He's looking like, shut up, just get in the car, and let's go. And, and I tell you, the phone was ringing. It was nothing, you know, and who knows if it's real or not. But the, the phone was ringing at the time, and it was all zeros. It was so it was weird. Time. It was a long time ago. Yeah. And it was a weird situation. So we get in the car, and I swear, Ron just like all the way up. You better tell me. You're not going back there. Don't be stupid. I'm thinking, seriously, I didn't want to go there in the first place. I mean, if I had known, um, it was this convict's house. So, yeah. It was just, out of, just got out of prison. Just got out of prison. You know, 
in, in all fairness to myself, um, I've, been, I, I, I've been working out, so I. I so
And he said, well, I'm a Marine. <laughs> In other words, he's tra he was trained to run toward danger, not away from it. So he was compelled, not only that, but it was his girlfriend, he was compelled to do something about it. It turns out that, that he had a burn on his hand because during the process of grabbing her and dragging her into the house, a red ray had come down and hit him on the hand. It was as though they were trying to knock his hand away. The light goes off as though they, the, the craft disappears quickly. And they wake up from a stupor. The phone rings. It's his sister on the phone, and she's driving toward the house. And she's been desperately trying to call him and say, you never believe what I saw over your house. He says, oh, yeah, I know exactly what you saw over the house. So now we have collaboration from somebody a couple blocks away. And uh, it, we have a joke about this case. We jokingly say, can't you just see up in the flying saucers there's two guys? And they're looking at each other as they leave. And they're saying, no, you were supposed to put them to sleep. No, you were supposed to put them to sleep. And they're arguing as they leave. And they're trying to figure out how they're going to explain to their superiors how they messed up so bad. That, that's the case that we studied, Bill Rickett, in 2004. Yes, crop circles in New England. You've heard of crop circles in other countries. There's a lot of them in England. Well, we have crop circles here in New England. This was a corn circle in Palmer, Massachusetts in August of 2001. And it's on the internet. Um, there was a very nice gentleman, his name is Scott Brown. He was a field investigator of ours at the time who lived in Palmer, very close, about a mile away from this incident. And um, he went over and investigated first quickly. And he wrote these words, which are on the screen, but I'm going to paraphrase again because I was there two weeks later when I was able to get out there, because for me it was a two-hour drive. And there had been a bad storm between the time that he investigated, the he took the pictures, and I got there. Um, a couple who, um, they didn't want to contact anybody, but their kids said, Mom and Dad, this story is all so weird. we got to tell somebody. And they contacted MUFON, a national organization, then contacted us in New England and said, can you go over there and find out what's going on here? This is pretty weird. And she described a light in the sky when she got up late at night, looked out the window toward the south, and saw light. From her point of view, that's where the story ends until the next morning when her husband comes in and says, excuse me, honey, but all those flowers you were growing in the backyard, they're all, they've all been smashed. I don't know what happened. Some kids, maybe? And they go out there and they look and they find this big circular area in the corn they were growing out there in a spiral pattern. Now, this is not wheat like in England. This is corn. And I'm from the Midwest. I mean, corn is like broom handles. You don't not, you don't bend corn stalks. You don't mess with them. They're, they're really stiff. And, but yet, there was a 20 to 30 foot circle created by something at the time, between the time that she saw the light at night and the next morning, and part of that circle had crushed her flowers, which she periodically sold on the, on the driveway in front of the house, so she was pretty upset about it. And the circle was so strange that 
the husband had been asking the neighbors, and they said, no, we've never seen anything like this before. All our ears are growing corn. And uh, it's not the kind of thing that kids would do. So when I went out there and talked to them, Mrs. Saucer reaffirmed that all she'd done is seen a light in the sky at night. And the husband had seen something the next morning when he went out and saw that the garden was trashed. And I couldn't see anything because in the intermediate, in the inter, inter uh, in, the, in the two weeks since it happened, when I got out there, there had been a bad storm. And all the corn had been torn down by a bad windstorm. So he said, I'm sorry you can't see anything. It, it's August, it's hot, I'm going inside, there's lots of flies, sorry about that. So I, I asked him to show me with, I had some sticks and some string, and I asked him to help me identify exactly where he thought it had been in this field of, of collapsed corn stalks. So he goes inside, and I'm out there, and I start, it's like digging through a pile of broom handles. <laughs> and so I, I, I go down a couple inches, and I suddenly see this pattern in the, in the broom handles, and they're all going in the same direction. And I, and I cleared away an area, and I realized that the crop circle had been preserved by the storm, not destroyed by it. Because everything around it had fallen on top of it. And sure enough, there was a crop circle. And you could see it. And I, I have samples that I took inside the crop circle and outside the crop circle. And really, really strange stuff. For example, I don't know if you've ever pushed over a corn stalk before, but I have in my youth. So they're, they, they have very shallow roots, and if you give them a shove, they fall over, and the, and the roots are sticking up out of the ground. And that's the end of the story, because you, you can't bend a broom handle. Right? Well, that's not what I found. What I found was that, imagine the plant is still, the roots are still in the ground, and the, and the, and the corn stalk comes up out of the ground about an inch, and that does a 90 degree turn and goes horizontal. And there are thousands of them all doing this inside the crop circle, and it's all laying down in a nice pattern. That's weird. There is no easy explanation for why all of these corn stalks would be yet like that at the bottom. And and the stalks outside the circle were just normal corn. They didn't have any bends. It turns out that the family's daughter lived in the house, as you're facing the crop circle, she lived in the house to the right. And on the left was a house that, where a truck driver lived. And, the, and I went and talked to the truck driver. And it turns out that the truck driver has a slightly different story than this, this, the, the family does. He told me that on the night of this incident, he heard a lot of commotion outside. He didn't see a light in the sky. He saw a light down in the corn. It was as though somebody was in a car with their headlights shining through the corn. And he figured some kids were out there in cars and they were, they were going to wreck the thing, especially his, because his corn field was right behind, right behind his house next door. So he rushed outside, and there was the husband in the dark with no flashlight, quietly walking back from his cornfield in the dark with a kind of blank look on his face. And when the neighbor called out to him and said, hey, you know, what are you doing? Did you see anything? He just walks right by him, and where does he go? He goes to the door of the house where his wife is standing holding the door open. 
and she's also got a blank look on her face. And the, and the neighbor, the truck driver, said, that's the weirdest thing I ever saw. And yet the, the family doesn't remember doing that. Now, they're the honest, they're the, the nicest people you'll ever meet. It's not that they're lying. They just don't remember. And I didn't even know that story, well, that piece of the story until I talked to the neighbor. It turns out that a couple houses down is the police chief. <laughs> and he had a fight with the husband about the day it occurred because he said that it occurred on a Friday night. The police chief said, I saw the light. I was outside in my sauna. And I work on Friday. It had to be Saturday. So it sounds almost like it happened twice. <laughs> and the second time, the police chief saw it and remembered it. And the husband doesn't remember the second time at all. When I asked, when I, when I was talking to the wife, she said, my daughter lives next door, said, no, there was a really, she said, I, she said to me, there was a really bright light, but there was no sound. This is in the middle of the night, 2 a.m. And I said, well, how did she even know that anything was happening? If there was no sound to distract or disturb her, I said, can I talk to her? And, and without hesitation, the mother said, no, you can't talk to her. And, and I said, okay, I was trying to be uh, very understanding of her boundaries. And then she said to me the weirdest thing. She said, great. She said, you have no idea how difficult it is for me to talk about this. I'm thinking to myself, all she said was she saw a light in the sky. <laughs> so it's one of the things that I've learned in these cases is that sometimes it's the things that people don't say are almost as important as the things they do say. And this is a good example of that. Uh, we have never talked to the daughter, but I think she was directly involved in this whole thing. And that's why the mother didn't want me to talk to her. So my wife has a great way of describing these cases in general. I end with it like this. She says, these cases great. They're always murky and unresolved, she says. I think that's a great description of these UFO cases. And she also says, you know, they always have a, a beginning, and they always have a middle, but they never have an end. You know, she never resolved it. I said, yeah, that's pretty much the way things are. If you, if you don't like that, you, you're not going to have much fun doing this. One of the most frustrating things with you UFO investigators, as Greg said, you get to a certain point that all of a sudden the witness disappears, doesn't want to talk about right. it, moves, moves away, and that's the other you can't do anymore. I've had people say to me, yeah, no problem, you can talk to my wife. The next day I call, boom, they don't want to talk to you. They don't want don't to be involved. Leave us, just, just, leave us alone. Yeah, and you don't know what to do except to honor their. The Andreasen affair took place in Ashburnham, Massachusetts. Familiar with the state, central, up, right up by the uh, Vermont border. This case was investigated by a team of solar physicists, electronic engineers, aerospace engineers, telecommunications specialists, and UFO investigators. They developed 528 pages of data. We actually have that. Here it is. <laughs> it's the original, the original documentation for the address and if you're one of the most important UFO cases ever documented. This is absolutely amazing. You're going to see some photographs that nobody has seen. Okay, uh, January 25th, 1967, okay, uh, 6.35 p.m., lights 
and the house blinked out, okay, and uh, for a moment, uh, they saw five strange-looking small creatures approaching in a hopping motion towards the house. If I can, um, this acronym up yeah. in the uh, middle, yeah. north. These are drawings, according to Betty Andres and Lucas' memory. Uh, five strange figures start motioning towards the house. They went through the door. As though it was <coughs> closed, but they went right through it. They went right through the door. Okay, and this was a bit, this was her daughter also. Um, her initial fright, Betty's, was immediately calmed by an overing, overpowering sense of friendship. Okay, she was taken out of the side of the house and brought onto a small craft, you see right here, okay? Um, she guesstimates the craft to be approximately 20 feet in diameter. Okay, it took off, accelerated, merged with a larger parent craft in which she was subjected to an examination. Now this is key. This is the first time this happened. As part of her examination, a silver pellet was placed deep in her nose with a long needle. This started the implants, okay, that we all hear about in the subject matter. This is very important because it's the first time anybody had first ever time. identified okay. that pellet had put up in somebody's head. Uh, I can't read it all, there's too much here. Uh, later that same night, Betty was returned home by two of her captors, okay, approximately 10.40 p.m. Uh, eight years later, she waited eight years, 1975, okay, um, she responded to a local newspaper story by the UFO researcher, Dr. J. Allen Hyatt, who's one of the founders of everything we do. She wrote him a letter, no response until 1977. <coughs> a 12-month investigation followed with extensive character well, yes, Massachusetts. Yeah, that's good stuff. Extensive character reference checks, two lie detector tests, a psychiatric interview, and 14 lengthy hypnotic regressive sessions that followed. Under hypnosis, Betty and her daughter relived a consistent detail. UFO experience with genuine psychological reactions. The case has spawned more than eight books, many articles, and the movie rights were purchased but never completed. Do you know what happened during that period? What movie came out? Potion Commentary. Exactly. That, you don't stand a chance mm. on something like so that. Both happens. movies were going to be made in Close Encounters beat out the injuries. And Not to minimize Betty and Bonnie Hill's experience, this was enormous. Her recall was such, okay, this was she was an artist, so she could draw very well what she saw. <laughs> These are her interpretations of what the craft looked like. We're running out of time, I'll go through this. On the bottom of the craft were three or four of these crystalline engines, okay? I can push the button. This is a schematic that was drawn on the ship. This is the ship that she was taken to. Here are the engines down below. Okay, she's in what appears to be a cleansing room where they have her put a camera on to the examination room. There's eight seats here, and each one of them has a purpose. This is fascinating because 
This apparently is the drive system for these craft. From goalies to ghosties, long-leggedy beasties, and things that go bump in the night, deliver us good law.